18 months. That's how long it took three reporters from two newspapers to fully understand the deadly problems in Florida's mental health system. There were isolated stories buried in local papers, little three-paragraph nuggets scattered once in a while across the state. Escaped mental patient killed by bus, employee stabbed in the rec room, a suicide. But were these freak accidents or symptoms of something much darker? In a rare collaboration between two neighboring papers, journalists from the Tampa Bay Times and the Sarasota Herald Tribune developed a hypothesis. Violence in Florida's mental hospitals has soared because the state suddenly cut their budget five years ago. Lawmakers and even experts in the field had no clue just how bad it had gotten. And what we found time and again was that this, these hospitals um, are not places where um, there is an overwhelming amount of abuse. We found that it's neglect. Hundreds of interviews, along with a mountain of police reports, 911 calls, court records, internal hospital documents, and security camera footage, painted a desperate picture. The state's swelling mental hospitals had become deadly. Thousands of patients, many violent, were just wandering the halls with hardly any supervision or protection. And when things went wrong, as they often did, hospitals were able to hide behind confidentiality requirements, a measure that often meant nobody was being held accountable. We understood that the budget cuts led to real fundamental staffing issues. And those staffing issues contributed time and again to violence. There just simply were not enough people around to, to, to take on this task. That's Anthony Cormier. He's one of the two reporters we talked to about the Pulitzer-winning investigation that quickly ignited reform in Florida's mental health system. Their five-part series, including a documentary, is called Insane, Invisible, and Danger. I'm Brett Murphy, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. Anthony Barsotti was a, um, a young man who had schizophrenia, severe schizophrenia. You know, he just kept spiraling out of control. He was five months in a, um, you know, a jail cell before they finally sent him to the North Florida Evaluation and Treatment Center. Um, he was incompetent, and he was basically decompensating over time inside the mental hospital. That's Leonora Lapeter Anton, an enterprise writer for the Tampa Bay Times. And he would sort of lash out at people. And one day he lashed out at this one patient um, and a guard came, shoved him out of the way and shoved him headfirst into a wall. Um, and Anthony's skull cracked and blood started to pool inside of his, his um, head. Well, they led him back to uh, the cell, the little, the little room where they had him, a little cot, and they laid him down. And, you know, he was in severe pain. He was screaming, he was crying, he was asking for Advil, his head was hurting. Nobody wanted to call 911 because every trip to the ER cost the mental facility money it couldn't spare. Supervisors discouraged it. They were understaffed and undertrained. Four hours passed, and in that time, Anthony could have been saved. But nobody responded, and so Anthony died. Anthony's case wasn't uncommon. The reporters found that in the wake of $100 million in budget cuts, Florida patients and employees have become forgotten victims. Since 2010, at least 15 people have died in Florida after they injured themselves or were attacked by other patients. At least three people, like Anthony, died because hospital workers took too long to call 911. Hundreds more were seriously injured. And because of employee confidentiality rules, victims' families have been left completely in the dark. The reporters became their first conduits of information. 
in Anthony Barsotti's case, um, his his family was still so devastated by what had happened to him. And every time I interviewed them, I felt like I was, you know, causing them to ha have massive grief all over again. They would just fall apart. I mean, it was really hard. I mean, the wife would just, you know, for days afterward would be devastated because, you know, these interviews would last three or four hours. But ultimately, in terms of being sensitive, they so wanted everybody to know what happened to their son. I mean, nobody had, you know, really looked into it. And they felt that he was being ignored. They felt that nobody cared. The cross-paper collaboration actually started years ago. Chris Davis was the investigations editor of the Sarasota Herald Tribune back around 2010. He got a hold of a database of mental patients. There were far more than he or anyone in the newsroom had imagined. When Chris left for a new job at the Tampa Bay Times, some of his reporters back in Sarasota still wanted to pursue a story on mental health hospitals. But there was just too much data to crunch. So Anthony Cormier called his old boss to see if he was interested in teaming up. They knew early on it would be a massive undertaking. Anytime you're doing one of these these longer-term projects, you, you again, you start by covering the waterfront, and um, you, you then really need to you vet yourself, uh, if that makes sense. You need to understand what you don't understand. One of the first things we hit upon were um, just escalating violence. We That was one of the first triggers for us. We, we, we understood that these places had, uh, had become more violent. We didn't understand why until we began to peek at their budgets, and we understood that uh, they had, you know, sort of, badly cut their budgets at the same, and you know, sort of causing you know, violence to increase. Over the course of the reporting, Chris hired Anthony over to Tampa. I felt like one of the things that uh, our editor Chris did that was really great was pull together three people who um, ha came from such different uh, aspects of journalism because that combination helped elevate it, I think. The reporters, all with a unique style, learned a lot from each other as they went. I learned from Leonora um, to continue digging. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're, I thought I was a pretty good reporter until I met her uh, and learned that there is always another stone um, to be overturned. You know, and from Michael, um, patience. The third member of the team, Michael Braga, took over as the investigations editor in Sarasota. He um, has an incredible amount of patience um, for things that uh, seem dull or or, or not worth your time. So I, I think from the two of them, um, I, I learned um, quite a good deal. We, we had a lot of trust. Um, the, the papers knew one another, the editors knew one another, the reporters knew one another, and um, so it was a natural fit. A big challenge in any investigation is just narrowing down everything you've gathered from interviews, data, and documents. Finding that one important avenue and sticking to it. A good editor will tell you too much information bogs down a story, no matter how important we like to think it is, no matter how hard we work to find it. Right. I, I think I think that there's some framing um, that, that that journalists can do um, in the early going. Right. So you've got to sort of stick to. The fundamental things. When your story's about too many things, readers will get lost, right? So, mm -hmm. so, 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 sort of plant your flag in the ground and stick to that. And it's a tough thing, right? It's, it's you, you, you go down a rabbit hole or you go down an alley and you're, you're in love with this sort of reporting, but it doesn't speak to your original point. If you throw the entire kitchen sink into the, into the the piece, it's all going to become diluted. So what we focused in on was the violence, what led to it what 
what caused it, um, uh, you know, and, and, and where, what was the basis of it. Leonora and Anthony started with records requests at state agencies. Their research opened the floodgates. History, policy, security footage, budget reports. Like a lot of accountability stories, they found a contradiction that set the tone for the rest of their reporting. One of the biggest things that we got were these critical incident reports, which um, the Department of Children and Families fills out every time there's an incident in which somebody is permanently disfigured or dies or um, is sent to a hospital or whatever. And so we saw all these incidents, and then we tried to match up police reports with critical incident reports. And that's where we realized that we weren't getting a full picture of what was going on in these mental hospitals because there were so many police reports that were not in the critical incident reports. And, um, I mean, it was, it was astonishing how, what the difference was. The reporters created their own database of incidents. Every year they looked at, they found double or even triple what state regulators had reported. Violence became the common thread. They found mental hospitals were underreporting because the state was no longer asking about most cases. So nobody had any clue how many people were actually getting hurt every day. So you've, you've basically limited the number of things that the state publicly says are violent incidents. And, and in that gap, we found, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other cases that were no longer sort of part of the public record. And we finally learned uh, that the, the, the sort of definition of violence had changed. More than 1,000 people had been injured, including patients and employees, um, injured or, you know, severely injured in some fashion, um, during this time period. And it was sort of astonishing to us once we, we, we sat back and looked at what, what we really had. The reporters were able to chronicle the violence with precise detail thanks to the security footage from inside some of the hospitals. When they first requested the tapes, they were repeatedly spurned by state and facility administrators. Eventually, though, they got what they needed through police and court records. And those tapes turned out to be a turning point for the series. They were at first uh, a very um, uh, important reporting tool um, they helped us understand the layout of the facilities, um, sort of the things that the patients were doing, the reaction time by staff members. But as we got closer and closer to publication, um, we realized that our words were, were never going to be as powerful as these very visceral images. And uh, we as two newspapers decided that it was in the public's best interest to understand and see how, uh, how these places are run, to see this sort of brutality. There's a reason Florida's mental hospitals are so crowded. They've become holding houses for the criminal justice system. Mentally ill offenders, unable to stand trial, go there to, quote, regain competency. In one of our stories, there was this woman named Laura um, Malia, and she'd been in and out of prison, like, or in, I'm sorry, in and out of jail, like, I don't know, eight times. And each time she was sent off to a mental hospital to regain her competency, Florida spent $143,000 on each of those times, you know, sending her to learn, comp you know, to become competent. Then they would release her back into the street and the cycle would start anew. They ran into cases like this all over the state, where taxpayers were footing the bill to house the mentally ill for longer than any prison sentence would be. Rehabilitation was an afterthought. It's essentially a big money suck. It's a big waste. Um, we, we, we basically send them to these institutions 
you know, get ju- solely to prepare them to get back into the, the, the justice system. We, we're, we're not um, – what we failed to do, uh, and hopefully new legislation that passed last year after the stories can address this, but what we fundamentally failed to do is to actually treat the underlying issue. So, so when you are arrested and you are incompetent, you get sent to one of these places, and they will – I mean, it's truth, they, they, they'll show you Mike, the movie My Cousin Vinny. Um, to get you ready for court. Every year, about 200 defendants, like Laura Malia, get out of mental hospitals only to wind up back there again within a year. Each defendant costs Florida taxpayers a total of $53,000 on average. That same amount of money could put two students through college at the University of Florida. Florida spends $50 million restoring the competency of defendants um, whose nonviolent crimes are minor. You know, that sometimes they never spend a day in prison. Hundreds of people charged with small, nonviolent crimes wait for months alongside violent offenders at facilities where anyone can roam free. It's super dangerous for everyone inside the hospital. The facilities heavily medicate those deemed incompetent for trial and try to teach them enough court decorum 101 to pass a test by the state. I mean, yeah, so, so you've got people in the system who, um, who, like, they will go there and stay in the institution longer than the charges. Like, right, so if, if, if you shoplifted and the maximum is, like, you know, 11 months and 30 days, uh, which it is for a misdemeanor in, in Florida. Like, they, we, we found them in these facilities for years, right, just because they were incompetent and the justice system could never deal with them. And it's just a nightmare system. It's just that was the most frustrating, I think, thing for all of us. It would make much more sense to use that money spent on housing nonviolent inmates elsewhere, say, on more staff. Anthony and Leonora said that backwards mentality contributes to the daily violence. There are just not enough employees to watch a growing number of patients. The sole enterprise of these systems, these institutions, is to send you back to a judge so that you can, you know, sort of pay your dues for your crime, even if, you know, even if your crime is so minor um, that you, you know, you likely wouldn't spend any time in, in, in jail at all. We, we will house you in an institution until you're ready. And it's just a broken system where we are focused on primarily punishment rather than treatment. Anthony and Leonora came across a lot of surprises while they were reporting the series. For one, they were expecting mental patients, vulnerable enough already, to be the center of abuse. But they found many hospital employees stuck in harm's way as well. The reporters started by making a huge database of current and past employees then they cold called and traveled the state to hear their stories. Tanya Cook uh, had been work, working there for about six months, and she was on a ward alone with, I think it was something like 27 men. And she was sitting in this one little community room with two mental patients who were sitting there. I think they were coloring pumpkins or something like that. It was around Halloween time. And she sat down to, to write her notes, and this... Um, a uh, Vietnamese man came in the in into the room and he had um in his in his hand a silver antenna you know sort of filed to a point he walks up to her and he basically stabs her in the face four times she was the only staff member in the building two other patients one a convicted murderer had to pull the man off of Tanya she had no communication devices no way to say hey you know i'm i'm being attacked or whatever um, you know, they just, today they have those because of the reporting that I think that we did. Even when patients are placed under special watch, they can figure out ways to hurt themselves and others. 
They swallow batteries and razor blades or hoard weapons to use on other patients. One man used a wad of paper to break out of his locked room and stab his neighbor ten times. The reporters backed up all these anecdotes with data they compiled from police and 911 records. They said it didn't take long for the state to act on what their reporting had uncovered. You know, that's the true measure of, sure. uh, of any one of these sort of projects is what, um, what real-world impact you have. Yeah, what was some of the response, like the knee-jerk uh, stuff you were hearing back when you told them what you had found out? Well, like in the, be- in the beginning, they didn't believe it. They were like, no, nah, there's no way. And it took, I remember there was a moment, um, at least uh, with the DCF, where we just flatly said, your violence has doubled. The number of violent incidents has doubled. And they didn't believe us. And our colleague, Michael Braga of the Herald Tribune in Sarasota, uh, flipped his computer screen around to show them the data. And um, one of the top officials said, well, geez, you know, we'll, we're going to have to look into that. After we had finished, uh, lawmakers in Tallahassee got involved and had a whole series of uh, very contentious uh, hearings with members of, uh, of the Department of Children and Families, which oversees the hospitals. And the solution was to essentially pump about $55 million into um, the state's entire mental health system uh, from the ground up. They said the state's quick action helped affirm what they had thought since the very beginning. The main thesis of this story, um, that these places were badly understaffed because of the budget cuts, was true. And the state recognized it and took immediate action. And um, quite a lot of the folks who sort of watched this process believe that this will help. This will alleviate many of the problems. It's not, the job isn't done by any measure, but the the action that they took in in Tallahassee is expected to to pay off. big way. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to stay up to date with our latest episodes. Then head on over to ire.org slash podcast to browse our archives. The IRE Radio Podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Brett Murphy. Podcast.